The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Some of you have asked about the arrangement of Jesus' Bible that I had up on the screen. The Old Testament survey, it's a thematic gospel-saturated survey. It goes book by book in accordance with Jesus' Bible. So it's a different arrangement than our normal Old Testaments. And I have introductions to each of the major divisions, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. Um, And then in the back of that, there is a Bible reading plan that follows that particular arrangement. Or you can go to my website. Uh, You'll find it's a resource website. Blogs don't happen super often. It's just where I put recordings um, and publications. And it's all available there. For example, there's an entire Old Testament survey uh, where I walked through for two years with my Sunday school class from Genesis to Chronicles. And um, so I spent one to four weeks on each Old Testament book. And it's all there. All the notes that I give my seminary students are all there, free download. It's just available um, if it will serve any of you. But my Bible reading plan is also there able to be downloaded. So, guidelines for applying Old Testament law. I have three of them. This is is where I always start when I'm reading my Old Testament and I come to a specific law. This is how I go about it. I determine the law's type and original meaning, significance, and purpose. By type, I mean one of five different types of laws. These are just general categories that we see. And on one of the last pages of your notebook, you'll see this laid out for you. Number one is criminal laws. My goal is that I want to assess what did this Old Testament law mean for them before I ever consider how might it minister to me. So what did it mean to Moses? And to do that, I've got to assess what kind of law it was. So first off, a criminal law. These are laws that govern crimes or offenses that put the welfare of the entire community at risk. They became criminal when it's not just a family dispute, but it actually has something, there's something going on that is impacting the broader community. The offended party is the state or national community and therefore the punishment is on behalf of the whole community in the name of the highest state authority which is Israel which in Israel meant the Lord. So things like kidnapping and homicide, false prophecy and witchcraft, adultery and rape, all of these were issues that Israel felt if these activities, if these practices are happening, the welfare of the entire community is at stake. The godwardness, the purity of the entire community is in jeopardy. Civil laws, laws governing private disputes between citizens or organizations in which the public authorities are appealed to for judgment or called upon to intervene. The offended party is not the state or the national community. So things like an accidental death or an assault, 
Two people get in a fight, a brawl, and the entire community's welfare isn't at stake, but the courts are still brought in to address it. Things like theft and the destruction of property, limited family issues like premarital unchastity, post-divorce situations, the mistreatment of slaves, all of these are part of civil legislation. Family law, these are non-civil domestic laws governing the Israelite household. Anytime we see how is a mom and a dad supposed to respond in a certain situation. Marriage and inheritance rights, the redemption of land and persons, family discipleship and care of slaves, all of this is part of what we could say that's a, a family law. These are not issues that would necessarily be sued over. They're just giving guidelines to within the home. Ceremonial or cultic laws. Now the word cultic in our minds off, often automatically means the cult, like the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses. But when you're reading an Old Testament or New Testament study, they will often use the language of the cult, and by that they simply mean the organization related to corporate worship. So the ceremonial or cultic law, these are the laws that govern the visible forms and rituals of Israel's religious life, all the pageantry that we read about in the Old Testament, the sacred sacrifice, the sacred calendar, various sacred symbols like the tabernacle, the priesthood, ritual purity that distinguished Israel from the nations and provided parables. Every one of these was like a little parable of more fundamental truths about God and relating to him. And then finally, compassion laws. We'll often see instructions in Scripture that, for example, if you're walking on a road and someone's donkey is in a ditch, we'll stop and help them get it out. But if you passed by, nobody could sue you. So it's a a distinctive kind of law that is a manifestation of compassion from the heart protection and justice for the weak, impartiality and generosity, respect for persons and property. So my first step in looking at any law in the Old Testament is simply to to give it its category because it helps me have a framework for understanding what lasting relevance there may be. Original meaning. Here's where I just try to package what did this mean for them. The significance... What I mean by that is, is it a primary law or a secondary law? Is it an application of a more fundamental principle, or is it that fundamental principle itself? Significance, is it secondary? Is it primary? And then purpose. Here, what we're doing is we're asking questions like, who, what, where, when, why, how often, to what extent? What was the point? What was the goal? Within the context of this Israelite society, what were they trying to bring about by giving them this law? Now, once I have that, I'm I'm ready to move on to the next step. Determine the theological significance of the law. Now, here, there's three aspects. Theology is just the study of God, broadly stated. So what I'm wanting to do is get inside of the law. I'm wanting to know what before I can make lasting relevance of this for me as a Christian through Christ, I want to ask, what does it tell me about God's character, 
about God's ways? Is there anything in this law that, that pinpoints something about who God is? And because God's unchanging, I can reach into that law and gain some lasting benefit from it in simply giving me clarity about who our God is. Number two, assess how Christ's law fulfillment impacts the law. We've talked a little bit about that. We're going to apply that now shortly. And finally, I want to state in a single sentence the love principle behind the law. Now, the challenge here is that you don't want to make your love principle so general. This is about love of neighbor. Well, get, get inside this law and assess love of neighbor means X. What does love of neighbor mean in this particular context? It's a very specific law. And if you were to restate the essence of this law in a love principle, I should be able to distinguish that love principle from other love principles. All the laws about love. So love of neighbor or love of God means we will do something in this way, or that Israel would, rather, do something this way. And then the last step is simply to preserve the portrait of God. When I'm saying, what's the lasting value of this for me? Preserve the portrait of God and preserve the love principle behind the law, but change the context in light of the finished work of Christ. And there we say, okay, this love principle might even take on a different shape this side of the cross. But the character of God remains unchanging and... That's the basic gist of how I go about it. So what I want to do... Well, that's funny. Um, so let's open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy 22. Now I go here just because we have... A handful of softball laws that I think we'll be able to process relatively easily. And all I want to do is just walk through that three-step process, type original meaning, significance, purpose. Then I want to assess the theological significance, looking at what does it tell us about God and his ways? What does it tell us about, um, or how does Christ's law fulfillment impact this? What, What do we know? Are there any... Is this the kind of law that got transformed in some distinctive way? Or is it a law that pretty much comes through the lens of Christ almost identically? That the new covenant law of Christ is is really no different than Moses' law at this point. Um, And what would be the love principle standing behind it? And then we want to preserve the portrait of God and love principle, but change the context in light of Christ's new covenant work. So we begin with Deuteronomy 22.8. Everybody have your Bible open. Look there with me. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. Now, if you go down to Home Depot and say, okay, I'm, you know, I'm looking at making a parapet, you'll probably get looked at pretty funny. What's a parapet? Pardon? A wall, a railing around a flat-roofed house. In Minneapolis, we don't have many of those. You might have more down here. I don't know. So in Israel, though, nearly every house was flat-roofed. It was part of the living space. And it says, when you build a house, make sure you put a wall around the edge. And then it tells us why. 
that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So, let's just start. Looking at your list of five possibilities, where would you put what type of law this is? Is it criminal, civil, family, ceremonial, or compassion? Okay, compassion. So we want to care, express compassion for visitors who might come over to our house, or it could be a family member. But then we add this added element, blood guilt. What does that do? Does that leave it in a compassion level? Pardon? Okay, civil? Criminal? It's accidental, though. Okay. So, but someone could be guilty for negligent homicide. That's what we're seeing in this law. It's up at a criminal level. Now, this is striking. Negligent homicide is a serious offense. And so this is specifically talking about building houses. When you build your house, be mindful. So how would you summarize the meaning of this law? Just put it in in different words. (laughs) Okay, you're jumping maybe into the... uh, Preserve the portrait of God, the love principle, change the context. So we're gonna, we'll get there. When you, when you build a deck, make sure it's safe. The, would you say it's a primary or a secondary law? Primary meaning a fundamental principle or an application of that principle? Secondary. Okay. And just capture in words what the purpose of the law was. To preserve life. Love, love your neighbor, of course. But we're going to see, I think all the laws have to match that one. Love your neighbor in what way? Responsibility. Okay, let's consider this, that there is some kind of a value in working to preserve human life. And what's at fundamental stake? We have to say, well, what what makes it different? And we would say, in, in the same way that we could say abortion is about God. Why? Because the image of God is being confronted. Someone who distinctly has the capacity to manifest God's character, to represent, reflect resemble him. We're taking it into our own hands in a distinctive way to kill that child. Abortion is about God. Similarly, this is ultimately, when, when, we, when we step back, we could say this is about God. This is about preserving his image in the lives of other people. We need to, we need to even in the way that we, we build a house, we need to be thinking about valuing his image in others. 
It's what gives humans worth and makes humans distinct from cats or dogs or birds, which God does value, but nowhere near like he values humans. Consider the sparrows. Are you not much more valuable than they? Yes. So, what does it tell us about God and his ways? Let's start there. We, we've already started to bridge this gap in jumping into the image of Godness. But, but if you were to just say, what does this tell us about God and his ways? This specific verse. That God values human life and so should we. Okay? Can you think of anything about Christ's work at the cross and his resurrection that would alter, transform this law? Think like um, the sacrifices. They are shadows. He's the substance. When the substance comes, you don't need the shadow anymore. Is this one of those kind of laws? Is there anything that would, in Christ's law fulfillment, alter the responsibility of love actually reaching into home building? I see some no's. Is there any yes? Is our preaching of the gospel separate from our love of neighbor? What I mean is, is there a... Pardon? Flesh that out a little more for me. I'm just a little slow today. Yes? Okay. I see. And so the question that I would have would be, do we see any signs of that activeness already apparent in the Old Testament? Like having a law that specifically focuses on love of neighbor in this way, is it being trumped through the activeness? Or is it... um, or even if you add, if, if there's an adding of that active element of sharing the gospel, does it diminish or change the, a responsibility to love, that, that love would be less broad as building a house with love in mind? Even if you add the active, does it actually, would it diminish the responsibility? And I'm struggling to think that it would. Now, if you were in a case, uh, if you were the judge, for example, as we begin to think about a love principle, what we want to do is to think, okay, um, how might this law be used in court and applied to other situations that would be comparable in nature but different? 
that there's a fundamental principle of love that's operative in this text. How might somebody take a stab? Okay. Unrequested favor, unmerited favor on behalf of a neighbor that the home builder is expressing on his stead. Put it in the framework of love of neighbor means. Just reword it. How would you word it? Love of neighbor means... Okay, taking an action on... Our behalf, without an expectation of anything in return, that's, that's a pretty general statement. Could we focus it on any more? Everything you said, I think, is absolutely right. But can we focus it specifically more to this particular law? Okay. So where you're going, I would say, is, is step three. You're already changing the context, but recognizing that love for God and neighbor would only be increasing in the new covenant. It's not going to be diminished any. That my responsibility would be all the more life-encompassing, not limited in any more. All of me is supposed to be loving God and neighbor in increasing measure, and now they have a pattern to follow and power to enable it. So that, but I think that's the right kind of thinking. How would a parapet law influence my own thinking about structuring a home if I have little kids coming over or if I've got an icy sidewalk? Okay. Design the parapet with the child in mind. Here's... Here's my, you had your hand up. Did you want to give it a stab? It's my responsibility to take care of the safety and security of anyone in my home. Okay, so so love of neighbor means I have responsibility to consider the security of anyone who comes into my home. That's a pretty good love principle. Here's how I did it, and mine isn't like the perfect answer. It's just... My attempt. Loving others means we will make our living environment safe for them. Very similar to what was just said here. Removing all dangers and respecting God's image displayed in every life. I just boiled it down to a love principle, but I haven't made the leap yet into considering what this would mean for me, necessarily. I've just assessed the type, original meaning, and significance. God in his ways, Christ's fulfillment, love principle. Boiled it down to that, and now I say preserve the portrait of God and the love principle, but change the context in light of Christ's new covenant work. I can't think of anything wherein Christ's new covenant work would change this, the nature of love. And so now we can apply it in fresh contexts like putting a rail on a stairwell. That love of neighbor even impacts that. It's not limited to just a parapet, but... You know, putting a fence around a pool, whatever it might be, that love is act, love for neighbor as an overflow of our love for God is supposed to be that broad. 
It's not just restricted to one little part of our lives, but it even impacts how we build a house. Let's go to another one. That's so funny. All right. Gender clarity. Look at Deuteronomy 22.5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. All right, let's start with what type of law we're looking at. Pardon? Ceremonial? Okay, the, okay flesh that out. There, what you're suggesting is there's some kind of symbolic element to this law. Pardon? A worship aspect to this. So, how's worship related to the clothing that people wear? Okay, what, what specifically is the abomination? Okay, so there's some kind of... Okay, there's so specifically related to gender identity and gender... Um, Expression. So, so ceremonial. Any other, any other stabs? There, there seems to be something ceremonial here. There's something symbolic. Family. Okay, we're we're talking about the essence, maintaining identity. So it may over intersect with a family law. Okay, compassion. Um, flesh that out. Okay, so compassion in light of the offense that it can be toward others and compassion law related to expressing mercy, working justice. Okay, that may be a secondary, secondary part of the law. We've got ceremonial, meaning that what's at stake here is worship. How is gender identity related to worship? Okay, the problem is that when you read scripture, sexual identification is always to be equated with gender identity. And we're living in a world that wants to distinguish the two. Your sexual identity, as you were created, male or female, can be trumped by my own gender um, identity crisis, that I can determine whether I'm a boy or a girl irrespective of my sexual identity as created by God. And that 
that that has at its core something to do with worship. That I am fighting against God's ways, not being willing to accept who he has made me. The abomination element in Deuteronomy, things like witchcraft, idolatry, are tagged abominations. Witchcraft is an idolatry in that you are seeking to know God's will or God's purposes by means other than the Lord. You're supplanting him. Idolatry is actually replacing the Lord. When I look at this, and I, it says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. And it calls it, calls it an abomination. It seems there must be at least other things that are called abominations. There's something fundamental in reorienting the vision of God. Idolatry is, is not allowing God to be the guide, to be the king. It's, it's supplanting him. That, that, that there's something that is supplanting God's, who, who God is when you engage in this type of cross-dressing. Now, how, how could that be? What's, what is, what I'm, I'm trying to get into the fundamental element of why is it so important to maintain gender identity in alignment with sexual identity? Why is that so vitally important? Okay. Because from the beginning, God creates marriage. Male and female are imaging of God. But marriage itself is a distinctive imaging of God with Christ and his bride. Sexual misconduct is so wrong because the glory of God is at stake. We maintain purity in our relationships between males and females because the distinction is part of God's means for putting his glory on display. His relationship is head, his church is helper. And here it appears to be even something that impacts beyond just beyond just the human household or the community of faith, that it actually impacts society at large, how men and women interrelate and how we identify one another. So, Ray, I mean, the comments were that it's, it's frightening. When you're giving a five-year-old, the, with, with such lack of development of their mind, the, the opportunity to decide what they want to be. And we're seeing, we're seeing a breakdown of the fundamentals of our society in this Transgender crisis. Recently, you know, the with the whole bathrooms 
If you walk in and there's someone there and they don't appear to belong to you, then just know they belong. They're where they're supposed to be. This is just warped, right? Just so, so twisted. And what we have to see is that there is something extremely fundamental at stake. That we are substituting the display of God for something else. That's why it's called an abomination. Now, as we look at this, is this a primary or a secondary law? Okay. Um, yeah, how, how a primary law, I would be more prone to think primary law would look like um, men and women need to always be able to be distinguished and live out their lives in accordance with their sexual identity. Here it's talking about actually clothing. So it seems as though it's an application of something more fundamental, but, but it's, those are secondary. How would you define the purpose of this law? Now here, what we're asking about is, what was the goal within Israelite society? What were they trying to maintain? Who was the law specifically addressing? What was the ultimate end that, that they were trying to see happen within society? How would you summarize the purpose? Okay, so that Moses would have intended that, that there's a specific purpose of maintaining the distinctions in order to give witness of something to the nations. Within their context, having a, an entire community that says, he's a man, she's a woman, and you can always tell the difference. That that was part of Israel's witness to the world. What were you going to say? So the comment here is that part of Moses' purpose was that he wanted to create a context of pleasing God and of a people that are attractive to God. That, and so the, the connection was in changing our identity, we are, um, the equivalent was like going on a date and we're the stinky partner who is not, no longer attractive to the main, to the, to the other partner because we've, we're not living out how we're supposed to live. If you were to say, what does this tell us about God, this particular law, what would it be? 
What does it tell us about God and his ways? Yes. That he's pure and holy. How does it tell us that? Okay. Okay. So fundamentally, don't bear the name of the Lord in vain. The Lord is holy, and we need to be living our lives day in and day out in light of that. This text points the reason, the reason maintaining these distinctions are are vital is because of who God is. His holiness demands that we maintain our gender identity in accordance with our sexual identity. Yes. Good. Good. That's great. Yes, so good. So we, the law by its very nature implies God is the author of our lives. He's the one who, who in the womb shaped us male and female. And in denying that our identity, we are denying his authorship and with that his authority. So he, in, he has intention in the way that he creates things. And we are denying that intention. That, that he sees, as he's writing out the story, he sees a beauty in maintaining male and female. He changes not. We can find great comfort in that. Hmm. So he changes. God doesn't change. And so... I think what you're getting at is he made the decision to create us the way we are and we can embrace that. Christ's full... Yes, sir. I'm sure that that was part of it, distancing themselves from um, specifically the Samaritan woman who they viewed as unclean. Um, And Jesus overcomes that. Work with this a little further. Uh, Yes, sir. Yes, we need to address that, and we'll get there on number three. 
when we change the context. The question is, does the original marriage covenant in Genesis chapter 2 influence this? And I definitely think it does. The text doesn't specify that we're dealing with a husband and a wife. It simply says, a woman shall not wear a, a man's garment. Um, man here is not the normal wor- uh, word for husband. It's actually... Um, uh, and well, the term is geber. Uh, because it's not the normal word for man, it seems as though it may even be intentionally distinct. That that it's trying to say this is not the wife and the husband that were at stake. Like a wife shouldn't wear a husband's clothes, a husband wear a wife's clothes. The fact that it's specifically this term that's used for, for man suggests that we're dealing with broader societal issues, but it doesn't deny the fact that male and female, specifically in the context of marriage, distinctly expresses images God in a unique way. Um, The can you think of th- ponder with me how Jesus inter- interrelated with women, how the church talks about men and women? In what way is this principle that we're seeing operative here, which we we don't see anything about clothing specifically in the new covenant? It doesn't talk. It, this law isn't repeated. But do we see things in the New Covenant instruction regarding how men are to relate with women, vice versa, and in the church or in the life of Christ that would either suggest something may have changed here or this would, the principle seems to be still operative? Reflections as you think about the New Covenant side. What do we see in the New Covenant relating to man and women? Man, men, and women. So we still see affirmation that we're to preserve distinctions. How does it show its face? Where do you see it? Can you think of any New Testament texts? Okay, First Peter chapter 3, he is to be a protector for her. And other, other texts where we see there's a distinction being maintained. In the church with the head covering. Okay, in the church with, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11's discussion of head coverings. Okay, uh, so where there's Paul without question is convinced that there is still a distinction between men and women. 
which assume something, you can identify them. That's one thing that's absolutely important as we look at this text. What's at stake is being able to identify, is that a man? Identify, is that a woman? And in certain cultures, there may be certain elements that would change to identify certain people as a man and a certain person as a woman. Certain haircuts that might be more one way or another. And what's at stake here is gender identity. It's less, does he have slacks on or does she have slacks on? We'll, we'll talk more about that when we get to number three. Anything else that you can think about with respect to Christ's fulfillment, either affirming or altering this kind of principle? Yeah. With respect to salvation? Correct. Right. So, whereas in the Old Covenant, circumcision was something that was only applied to the boys, not to the girls. In Christ, there is, there, there is no distinction. Something's been altered in, in this covenant. And yet... Um, so I think what Paul's addressing there in Galatians 3.28 is the idea that there is preference or prejudice in God that would favor one sex over another. Favor one ethnic group, Jew versus Gentile. Favor whether you're a slave or a free man. And he's saying, in Christ, there's none of that distinction. But he doesn't elsewhere maintain that there isn't any distinction. That the, that the distinction is non-operative with respect to how we're living out our daily lives. He still has moms and he still has dads. And he assumes in all of his instructions with respect to church leadership, with respect to, um, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. You've got... Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife, uh, wife and husband team, side by side, teaching Apollos. You've got Lois and Eunice, grandma and mom, teaching Timothy. You've got older women teaching younger women. You have the call, young pastor Timothy, treat older men as fathers. Treat younger men as brothers. Younger women as sisters and older women as mothers. But all of that instruction assumes you can distinguish who's the men and who's the women. If uh, in the natural world, clothes are a major factor of identity, we talked about changing your identity. Yes. In the gospel, our identity is in the cross. Yep. Yes. I would say the way that I, I see Jesus 
acting like the most perfect man, leading all of us men to know how to care for women. We see it modeled in his life, how he cared so well for women, how Paul is able to distinguish men from women. Um, it, whatever there is that's to be able to distinguish the two, it's not about our... Um, It seems as though Paul still wants people to maintain my personal identity as a man, whereas hers is a woman. Even in Jesus. That the part of the God-givenness into the church is to be able to identify who are the men and who are the women. And the question is, how would that flesh itself out? How is it identified? Um... I'm struggling to think that even the clothing issue would not be, that there could still be clothing or haircuts that could still distinguish in certain cultures whether this is a man or a woman. And and if it was in that culture, you'd need to be able to maintain, yes, I am a man versus yes, I am a woman. Does that make sense? I... um, In a kingdom sense... No, but you're absolutely right. Our identity is in Christ. Yep. 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 Right. Yes. The. Yes. The challenge is that part of our responsibility is to appear as who we are. That part of my honoring of God is actually living as a man. Living it out in a way that is godly. Right, right. But there is a distinctiveness about Christ being portrayed through a woman and Christ being portrayed through a man. And so that, that's all I'm wanting to maintain. And so with that, it seems as though we, we have... Here, here's, my, here's how I shaped my love principle. Loving others in God means that adults will dress in a way that does not confuse our gender in the eyes of others. And some of you ladies have short haircuts, and I don't look at you and ever think, that looks like a man. Gender identity is not at stake in that moment. You go into Kohl's, do you have a Kohl's down here? You go into Kohl's, and at least right now, at least right now, there is still a ladies' section and a men's section. Right? Right now, there still is that. But you go into each of those sections, and there are slacks over here, and there are slacks over here. Do you have Olive Garden down here? You go into Olive Garden, and I have a waitress come up who has a tie on. And I never look at her and say, are you a waiter or a waitress? 
Her clothing is actually not throwing me off. In that moment, I wouldn't say she has man's clothing on. What we're talking about is gender confusion. And there are, at times, I will see teenagers running around and I can't tell. That's what we're talking about. I think that's what this passage is talking about. It's talking about a gender confusion. Now, so, so preserving the portrait of God and the love principle, but changing the context in light of Christ's new covenant work. I really am grateful for the stress on our kingdom identity. I am much more, I mean, my identity has to be seen through who I am in Jesus. Has to be. But then that identity is lived out in the context of who he's made me to be. And my imaging as dad and husband is different than my wife's imaging as mother and wife. And it's supposed to be that way. And it's supposed to be maintained and ever distinct, lest an abomination happen. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, so this male-female thing is a parable, a parable that's pointing to something greater, and the parable operates at numerous levels. So, at one level, I'm part of the bride, and another level, I'm displaying the head. Christ. And so, but I am bride within the context of community, not as individual. That it's the church that's the bride of Christ. And so we have a responsibility with respect to Him to maintain surrender, treasuring, respect, and But with respect to others under my care, I have the responsibility to image his headship in my own life. And there I am now the servant leader who gives up my life for the benefit of those around me. Who's willing to sacrifice my own self for the welfare of others. Who will walk in wisdom not passively, not aggressively, but with a, a servant heart that's seeking to, as Paul, well, as um, when, when Adam is at the altar, I see it as an altar, and the first marriage is happening, and God is doing it. God makes Adam. God puts him in the garden. God puts him to sleep. God takes out his rib. God makes the woman What God has brought together, let no man put asunder. God is the main actor in Genesis 2, and he brings the woman to Adam, and he looks at her, and he goes, whoa, man. He sees the shape, the beauty, and and we see it in the Hebrew text. It's ish, 
versus Isha. That same wordplay. He sees this girl and it's wow. And he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Who's he talking to when he says that? If he was talking to her, how would he word it? You. So there's only one other person on the scene. It's God, and I think he's making his wedding vows. And he's declaring, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And in doing so, he's saying, I will love her as my own body. We have far too many men that when they stub their toe, they care for their toe. When they bite their cheek, they don't take a hammer and knock out that tooth, say, you'll never hurt me again. But as soon as their spouse offends them, they say, I'm done with you. That's not loving your spouse as your own body. We cherish our own bodies, even when our own bodies hurt us. And that's the call of the man in imaging the kind of self-sacrificial love that Christ has for his people. But then we have this other role of, yes, we are part of the bride, and by thinking about it that way, I'm thinking our responsibility is to ever be submitted to and treasuring and respecting Christ as our head. While imaging his headship as I carry it out in my own life. Does this law, look at it again, does this law mean that a little girl could not be a soldier in a kid's play at school and wear a beard? It says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination. So we read that and we have to say, okay, what was its original objective? What's at stake? So many of you right off the bat said, no, that's not what it means. It's okay. It would be okay for a little girl to be dressed up like a soldier with a beard. Maybe. Let's just think about this. Um, is there a question of identity confusion when that little girl walks up out on the stage? I mean, are we looking at her and saying, is that a boy? Is that a man? Most of us probably know it's a little girl, and that's okay. But when it comes to shaping a worldview from the very youngest age about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman we at least need to be mindful of how we're shaping our kids to think. And it may move us to actually say, I don't think that that would be the best idea. You send your kids into the room, and at least at my house, we've got a big chest, and there's all the play clothes in there, and my six-year-old son comes out with this giant floor-to-poofy-sleeves princess outfit on, and I'm like, that's great, Joe, you know? And, and I, but I as a dad don't want to just 
push that off. I, I want to be shaping, always mindful that, okay, there's an innocence here, a sweet innocence, and yet I also want to raise boys to be boys and girls to be girls and see the beauty of that. And so with my sons, what that means is that I'm nurturing within them a passion to be hunters and gatherers, to get dirty and hard work. And with my daughters, if they want to hunt, great. My 15-year-old got her first buck last fall. That's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. But what am I going to nurture? I'm going to nurture what Paul talks about in, in Titus chapter 2. Nurture in her a, a, a love of, of domesticness and, and house care. To, to raise her up to be ultimately a Proverbs 31 kind of woman. Whose husband is celebrated at the city gates where he sits among the elders of the land. Because... He has that kind of a girl. So it's at least something to think about. How would this relate to a kid's play? I think we can't just push it off right away. We need to, we need to think about the worldview that's operative behind this and the identity we're shaping within our kids, what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, and we just want to be sure that we're guiding that and yet not freaking out when there's absolute innocence. So... Sitting here in Greenville, where there's a long history of firm lines between what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, and yet at times probably going too far, where Certain rules have been created that in order to distinguish in certain contexts what is a man and what is a woman when actually that's, I'm not having trouble distinguishing that woman who's standing there with slacks on or even that guy with long hair. I know he's a guy. I know she's a girl. And I think that the New Covenant would say, that's great. Maintain your gender identity and dress in a way that does not create gender confusion. And that, in our culture, means that you could have some girls with some short hair and they still look absolutely beautiful, just like a woman. That's, that's feminine. And guys that could have long hair. So we as a church, I think we just need to be careful in creating too many rules too quickly and try to stay as faithful to the text as we can and consider what does this mean in our culture and what it means today might be different than it means 20 years from now in maintaining gender identity properly within our, within our culture. Ready for another one? Or, so I have, I have uh, verses 6 and 7 on bird nests. We could talk about the Sabbath. 
We could talk about pork. We could talk about tattoos. Um, so just let me know where you want to go. <laughs> so I have tattoos and I have pork. Okay, let's go to Leviticus, um, Leviticus 19.28. It's the only text in the Old Testament that addresses tattoos explicitly. Leviticus 19.28. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. So Leviticus 19 is a, is a loaded text. I don't have tattoos up here, so we'll just use the line items that are there. Type, original meaning, significance, purpose, God and his ways, Christ, fulfillment, love principle, and then preserve the portrait of God and the love principle, but change the context. So let's just look at that. What type of law is this? Leviticus 19 is loaded with all five of those different laws all mixed together, list after list. This is the same passage where we, Leviticus 19.18 is love your neighbor as you love yourself, which we're all so familiar with. Here you get, you shall not make any cuts on your body for, very literally, for the soul, but probably for a dead soul, and or tattoo yourselves, I am the Lord. The idea of cutting your body for a soul, for the dead. I mean, we don't get a lot of words here. It doesn't give us a lot to go off of. But probably what's at stake here is some kind of idolatrous activity, specifically related to pagan worship of the dead that something you do in the body now is going to influence the soul of a dead person. And it's also related to this tattooing of yourselves. What would you say is the type, what type of law does this look like? Ceremonial. Okay. So related to corporate worship, and distinguishing Israel's corporate worship from others. Okay, I think that that's, there's a high probability that, that it fits there. Any other reflections? As we're thinking about building a bridge, how often is tattooing in today's culture part of corporate worship? All of a sudden, you can just see that tattooing today is, is very different from what we're talking about here, okay? That it, it, this context is a different context than where we're seeing it play itself out today, and that's going to influence how we think about this law. So, yes. Sure, you're right. It, so there's still, um, there are still contexts <clears throat> here in the West where tattooing can be an identity marker, where I'm part of this group, I'm part of this gang. 
But often, it has no association with that at all. So, what would you say the purpose of this is? I mean, it's, there's not much here to go on. But it tells us that it's cutting the body for the sake of the soul. Perhaps for the dead souls. And tattooing yourselves. God doesn't want any of that. But if it is associated with this pagan worship, then um, we, so we have to say, okay, what's going, what exactly is the fundamental problem here? We also have, though, a permanence of alteration to the body, where the body is being permanently transformed. We know that certain types of piercing, specifically earrings, were very common. But other forms of of body cutting was absolutely inappropriate. And we see mention of body cutting show up a handful of times, tattooing only this one time. All of it associated, it appears, with some form of pagan idolatry. So there seems to be a, that the purpose would be to somehow distinguish yourselves from these, what the pagans are doing. Don't be like them in the way that they are worshiping. But there may be more going on in that this idea of um, the permanence of a tattoo, tattoo yourselves, is, it, is, there a, um, is there at all a problem with that, that image of permanence? I, I don't know. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Are we loving ourselves in shaping a permanent change? These are just questions I'm having as I'm approaching the text. Let's think about God and his ways. Again, we don't learn much here, but what does it tell us about God and his ways? So her son needed a tattoo on his arm in order to identify with the gang of Christ. Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ. Not I, but Christ lives in me. And it's written here, and for this mom who was always raised, we don't do that. It was very difficult for her to have her son... Come home with that big tattoo. We have a pastor in town that has four solas tattooed on his forehead. Okay, four solas. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in Scripture alone. So, what would you say? I mean, does this tell? What does this tell us about God? 
Okay. That's good. So he's jealous. And so we need to guard ourselves. The principle here is guarding yourself from associating with pagan non-godly practices and worship. And it is... How about Christ's law fulfillment? Has anything changed with respect to that? God's jealousy. Nothing's changed there. It is difficult for me, as I look at this law, to build a direct bridge from the tattooing law in the Old Testament to most in the West who are getting tattoos, most Christians who are getting tattoos. It's hard for me to build that bridge directly because it seems as though, even though it's, there isn't much here, that it's, the tattooing is directly related to, it seems as though, pagan worship practices. And maybe in the 60s, tattooing had a greater identity with rebellion. But today, it, at least in, in the West... It, do, it doesn't seem to be carrying that. So that you have God-loving, Christ-pursuing sons who are actually wanting to mark themselves forever as being identified with Christ. And so when I, when I shape a love principle, loving Others and loving God means that I will not engage in practices, in worship practices that are not pure. And I say, does that mean today I couldn't get a tattoo? I struggle to see that I'm, I'm just, what I'm thinking that this law is about in the Old Testament isn't related to what's driving people to get tattoos today. And when I take this and I put it through the lens of Christ, it would be addressing usually things, at least in the West, that aren't related to tattooing. But there are many places still on this globe where tattooing is specifically identified with the occult. And for me, who is so mission-minded... Increasingly so, having a tattoo anywhere on my body is just because of the nature of the context going to restrict opportunity for mission. Because even though tattooing here doesn't relate to this, there are places where, in the worldviews of the people, it still does. And so, so that's one element that I'm thinking about as I'm trying to build the bridge, preserve the portrait of God and the love principle, but change the context in light of Christ's new covenant work. So as I've had to deal with students with respect to tattooing, I personally discourage it. I don't think it's necessarily a sin. My pastor's wife has one. She got it just three years ago, so... I and I but I didn't I didn't like that she got it but 
I don't think it was, I, I think that, I, I can't go to Leviticus 19.28 in order to say what makes me uncomfortable with it. Because when I bring that, build the bridge, I don't think that it's, what it was addressing back then is probably what it's addressing today. But when it comes to practical wisdom, then I, I can give some caution. What I want to teach my students is that your identity is in Jesus. And your witness is supposed to be based on your lifestyle, not by what's printed on your arm. Simply saying, Jesus reigns on your arm doesn't make you a Christian. It's your identity that will be surrendered to him day in and day out that will give testimony that you indeed bear his name. But that stated, I right now don't see where how I could say in all situations a tattoo would be sinful, at least from the one text that it's in, because when I bring it through Christ, it seems to be addressing a different issue back there than it is for most today. But missionally, not knowing where God's going to lead me in the future, I won't get one for myself. Because of the impact it could have elsewhere. Uh, well, then I hope it's honoring to you, Mom, instead of dishonoring. It could, the nature of the tattoo could definitely impact whether it's wise or not wise. And the heart motivation behind whether I'm do, what am I doing this for. It's easy to say I'm doing it for the glory of God. I just want to remind myself of who I am in Jesus or I want others to know who I am in Jesus. And my question is, do you need a tattoo to do that? Um, but I'm also cautious to, even though I can encourage people or discourage people in a certain way, um, I don't feel like I have grounds to say that's inappropriate in all, in all situations, or it's sin. I, I don't yet see that. Mm-hmm. Yes, billboarding versus an actual light shining. Yes. Yep. Yes. So, 
in all these things, whether we eat, whether we drink, or whether we get a, get a tattoo, we want to do it for the glory of God. We want to always guard our hearts because we can be so easily deceived in, in really assessing what's going on and at the core assessing how is this going to help me glorify God more. And we can get confused of the bill, you know, I'm creating a billboard versus actually living out passionately in surrender for, for Jesus. And we can't confuse the two. Simply having something plastered on my arm doesn't mean I'm living for the Lord. It doesn't change my identity. That's helpful. Yes? Um, two things. First of all, just commenting on what if the motive, heart motivation is to relate to a certain group of mm-hmm. unsaved. Yes, so, yes. Um, you know, um, a, a mission-minded yep. focus. Yep. At least in our world, in our, yep. our um, country, our area. Um, then the second thing is, does the context of that one verse have anything to do? I mean, like the rest of the paragraph, or is that just all by itself there? Yeah, it's always important to ask that. As I look at the, the flow in the text... Um, The framing of I am the Lord, your God, we see that show up, I think it's five times in this text. And it does seem to break units up. What it would do is put, you shall not eat any flesh with blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. That would be the whole unit. And in the context, all of that relates to pagan practices that Israel was supposed to distance themselves from. So I think that only re, it just reinforces the framework that we're talking about. Now, your, your statement was missionally. If I want to relate to hell's angels, bikers, you know, I've got a mission, a, a, I've got my Harley, I don't have a Harley, uh, and I want to try to engage this biker crew, and all of them have tattoos on their body. Can I get tattoos in order to relate with them? Um, maybe. My question would be: Do you need them to connect? Is you know is the is the leather enough? The big Harley Davidson on the back is that enough? Um, I don't know. I I had a student. That pre-Christian, he was in his probably mid-40s, and he, I mean, I had never seen a man with so many tattoos. It was, it was floor to ceiling. And, but all of that had come about before he was a Christian, and now he was the leader of some Christian biker league. And this guy, I mean, he was legit believer. I mean, legit Christian, loved Jesus. And, and I, I guess I just want to guard all of us from making quick assumptions based on, on view, you know, how someone looks. And we also want to guard ourselves in even assessing the motives of what's going on in the life of, of someone who says, I do want to get a, 
get a tattoo. Um, but also take the opportunity when it's given you to force them to think about implications. It's easy for a young person to think this is really cool and they don't imagine what it looks like when you're gray and flabby and it's, you know, it's green and, and it's just the way it is. But, but also thinking missionally. Do you have a clue where God might lead you? Who you might have an opportunity to impact and how your own outward appearance, we're not talking clothes now, we're talking about physical emblems, might have an impact in that culture. And in making this decision, you're actually going to be limiting where you could go and what you could do in certain contexts. Those are the kinds of things I I think about um, Take the three questions as you read your Old Testament and just think, just like we've been processing here for the last hour and a half, just work it through. That, that, that would be my encouragement. It's what I have to do. I, I don't have a, a model that just says, this group always relates to me this way. No, the character of God is going to be displayed to us. Jesus' law fulfillment can alter things in fresh ways. So every law, I, I have to approach fresh, not knowing what it's going to mean for me. And then I have to do the the hard wrestling of thinking through the type and the the significance and the purpose, what it tells me about God, what what Jesus' work does in changing it. What's the love principle behind this? And then hold on to the character of God, which is unchanging, and maintain the love principle in light of what Jesus has done. And let your hearts be edified. This has been a remarkable, joyous four days for me and my boy. Thank you for coming. Thank you for letting me be a part of this. It's been a gift. May the Lord bless you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.